Many of our churches have great theology when it comes to mission. We know what we're called to do, we know why we're called to do it, and we have a great desire to see people around Australia one for Jesus Christ. But what would you do if you had the ability to actually hire someone to execute all of your desires, to put your desires and your dreams into action? And if you could give them a blank slate to do anything, what would they do? If you had the ability to do anything at an existing church, missionally, what are the things that you would do? Well, today uh, I'm thrilled to be able to uh, chat to Elliot Temple. Uh, Elliot works at Christchurch St. Ives, a church uh, in Sydney's northern suburbs. And it's great to have him with us today. Elliot, how are you, mate? Great, Dave. It's nice that you had me in. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure, brother. Mate, uh, you're working in evangelism and mission at the moment. Um, But obviously, more importantly than even that, you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. How did that happen in your life? Yeah, I grew up in the north side of Sydney and uh, we were on a farm. We had horses. We had yabbies in a creek, that kind of thing. And my dad stayed home and mowed the lawn, but my mum, she took us to church. Mm. And uh, that's probably a little bit of a sense of my life. A little bit divided in some ways. I've got God Church, I've got Outdoors Adventure, Yabbies and all that kind of stuff. And they didn't always merge. They didn't always come together. And so, you know, later in life, um, I think when you're a teenager, you're trying to figure out how they come together. And we were doing things in life that were a little bit, uh, you know, out of step with God. I remember going to concerts, I was in a live music. We'd go and we'd, um, I remember going to the big day out and we all went and we all jumped the fence because we didn't want to pay for tickets. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I thought that was easy. That was good. I'll take my little brother to do the same. And we went and did it at a walk tour. And uh, we, we climbed the fence, get away with it, no stress. But then he rang my uh, mum about a month later and he said, I want to I do something, mum. I just wanted to know what you thought about it. And my mum said, no, you can't do that. It's illegal. <laughs> and I thought... How good is it that he's asking mum to do something illegal? <laughs> That's good. Uh, but then, he, uh, then my mum turned to me because I was in the room and she said, what do you think, Elliot? I said, he can't do that. He's a Christian. And he said, what's he talking about? He showed me how to jump into concerts <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So that was a time of reflection for me. That was a time of trying to bring two worlds together. And that was a turning point where I... I knew that I hadn't fully committed in all areas of life to bring it all together. And so I always thought of Jesus as my saviour, but that was the moment where I was like, I've got to do this fully. So I committed to him as my Lord. And I committed to, if there's things that I know are wrong, that I know God doesn't want me to do, I'm not going to do them. Mm. Was there anyone in particular, uh, a church or uh, even a home, uh, who was particularly significant uh, in explaining those truths, I suppose, the, the movement from Jesus as Saviour to Jesus as Saviour and Lord. Um, who are the most significant people in that? Yeah, so I, I actually think that a lot of the teaching that we get is always telling us these things. We just need help mm. taking it in. Because I heard that from everywhere, all my upbringing in my home church. I had an amazing Bible study leader who invested in me for about 15 years. Wow. He, uh, he basically taught me tutored me at high school to hang out more and he picked up surfing because he didn't like surfing but he thought there was a great opportunity to hang out with some of the youth he was in his 20s he just got to know us he invested in us and he tried to apply this to our lives and um, I just think that uh, everything that I'd heard I'd already knew it I already heard it I just hadn't committed to it to use an example my wife 
was sitting in a gutter beside swimming classes when she became a Christian because she remembered what she'd learnt when she was in primary school wow. in Scripture. So I think we learn a lot, just don't take it in. Yeah. So keep teaching. Even if we, even if we don't see fruit immediately, because uh, there are people who years later, uh, it'll, it'll come home to roost uh, and really be revealed. Elliot, for, for many Christians, um, they come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they never make that next step to evangelism. Um, they remain kind of like undercover operatives, if you like, who, who really find sharing their faith difficult. Uh, but you're an evangelist. Um, you're someone who sees the need, feels the need for the lost to know Jesus, um, and you've done something about it. How did that happen? That change, the move from, hey, I'm a Christian, Jesus, Lord, Saviour, to, hey, I'm a Christian, I want to tell people about Jesus? Yeah, I'd say it was the same time. Mm. So it wasn't a two-step thing. Wow. And I think that the depth that you get when you just read your Bible in year 12, when I was doing the HSC, I remember being very committed to reading the Bible every day. I was trying to do the Bible in the year the same year as the HSC. <laughs> and uh, I just remember it making me think. Yeah. And there's the general call of the gospel. And then there's the specific gifts. And I just think you, we're crazy if anyone says, you know, evangelism is a specific gift. I mean, there is true, truth to the saying that evangelism is a gift. But I was talking to a gentleman this week in his 80s, and he said, I don't believe evangelism's for everyone. I think it's a gift for a few. And by the way, I did a speech at my, um, at my high school reunion the other day, and I'm not an evangelist, but I said to everyone, now let me tell you about my faith. <laughs> so he was sharing his faith because you believe, therefore you speak. And I like the way Richard Borgonon put it, who wrote the word one-to-one. -one. We're not all called to be Bible teachers, but we're all called to be Bible sharers. Yeah. From the very beginning, I knew that to be true because think about in the gospel, you've got Jesus, um, first thing he does, calls fishers of men. Last thing he does, sends people out to go and fish for men. When he says, take up your cross and follow me right in the middle, we've got all kinds of explanations as to what that means. But why did Jesus take up his cross? Mm. And it has to do with the fact that he died to save people from sin. And uh, when we speak about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we want to take up our cross and follow, it's just natural to the Christian disciple, the, the discipleship life. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think I had uh, a moment. I think it was just Bible equals, therefore I'll do it. That's the general, but the specific is um, in, in late high school, I joined a band and we were in pubs a lot. So come weekends, we would, um, every weekend we'd be in a different pub. There was eight guys in the band. Most of them weren't Christian churchgoers. Was this a scar band or something? How did you have eight people yeah, in the band? Yeah, pretty much. Was it a scar band? Yeah, you had a horn section. Of course you did. Saxophone. Yeah, I know what era you're talking about as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, reggae rock, we called it. Anyway, uh, we went around um, pubs, and when people got together, because of my conviction out of the Bible, I used to pray, Lord, give me an opportunity when I go to the pub tonight to share my faith. Mm. And uh, God, God regularly answered that. Pretty much every time I went to the pub, I had chats. We uh, had some good times. We went on a bus to Melbourne and took people up to surf comps on the coast. And we'd take all these people with us. I just had lots of time. So it was a combination of general call of the scriptures for all Christians to do mission, followed by my specific circumstance where God had placed me, where I was in that environment a lot 
which which made me uh, I don't have I wouldn't say I have the natural talents for a lot of this stuff I'd say it's just thousands of hours of conviction and commitment and uh, you get a bit better as you go yeah um, what were your early attempts like your early attempts to engage with people non-christian people uh, to share the faith the great news of Jesus what was that like I remember one guy at a um, party who told me that he'd gone into um, a church to steal all the Bibles. <laughs> and uh, I remember trying to have a chat with him about it. Um, and uh, we were at a party. There was a bunch of people listening in. And he just got fired up about religion because he had a passion against it. Yeah. And then he started accusing me about Leviticus and all the laws of Leviticus. And I just remember thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> um, being in a band, being in that environment, I remember, um, so guitarist became a Christian. Wow. And uh, that was over a year of conversation. So it's a long time, and you're just going to pubs chatting regularly, in and out, um, and giving books. He read books. He was interested. He became a journalist, so he's the book kind of guy. Yeah. Um, but when we'd go out and we'd chat about these things, um, I still remember... When he became a Christian, the division it kind of caused in the community, everyone turned and said, you're not going to convert me because they felt like if one person had done it, it was a threat to everyone. Now, he, um, I remember when he went to the pub with us about a month later, there was a lady probably five years older than him that was showing an interest in him. And he said, no, I can't. I'm a Christian. Wow. And she just started spitting at him and yelling at him like massive aggression. Uh, hated the idea that she'd be rejected on the basis that he was a Christian and uh, thought that Christianity was the stupidest thing in the world. So that was, what was it like early on? It was like being in places where people thought it was stupid, but I knew it wasn't stupid, so I just kept talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, mate. Mate, we're going to be speaking uh, and digging into what it looks like to go into a, a church with a strong history a strong history of gospel proclamation, a good church, um, but a church that, that might have um, in mission become well, uh, veering off and not been as effective as it had been in previous generations or previous years. And what it looks like to go into a church like that uh, and try and get mission back started again. And that's a scenario many of our listeners and, and viewers are, are in at the moment. They're in churches, they want to see mission started. Um, they don't know how to do it. What principles should they have? We're going to talk about that and what you've been able to do and, and trying mm. to do. Mm. Um, but before we get there, tell us a little bit about um, the church that you're at. And can you tell us the process of, of how you got there? Um, what, what was your job interview like? What was your job description like when you arrived? So tell us about the church, context, who is it, where is it, um, and your involvement in the church. Yeah, so Christ Church St. Ives, it's on the north side of Sydney. It's about half an hour from the middle of the CBD. And I've been there for six years. Mm. Uh, prior to that, I was an assistant minister in a general role, but God had put on my heart for a long time that evangelism is where I wanted to specialise. Uh, so I went looking for a job in evangelism, and the job came up that it was a mission portfolio role. Um, I acknowledge and recognise a lot of churches don't have that privilege you know, to employ a mission pastor. So this is a bigger church. There's 750 adults on a normal weekend mm. uh, in attendance. Um, and a great history of youth and kids ministry. So within that context, um, now I'd come out of 180 adults at my previous church, four congregations on a Sunday. 
So you preach four times. Uh, all of the congregations are small networks. Um, and we'd been doing mission there, and there was some great opportunities. But when I came to Christchurch St Ives, we look back, 1970s, there's this Dudley Ford character that everyone mentions because he brought evangelism explosion into Australia. And uh, he, he really went out multiple nights a week to everyone in St Ives. So he was taking, the pastor? He was the pastor. He was the senior right? pastor. Yeah. And he took his congregation members and trained them to go out every night of the week and visit homes. Anyone who said Anglican on the census, which was a large percentage in St Ives, it's North Shore, it's um, the kind of environment where... There's a lot of, uh, you know, white people that have been around for a long time. Middle, middle management <laughs> Anglicans, right? So yeah, yeah. there's a lot of that. Um, and so he took people out doing this and the church grew to the size it is pretty much today. Wow. Um, and then over the last, you know, 30 years or so, uh, it's been become a reputation as a church has been really maturity-centric and focused on discipleship because... Um, John Woodhouse came along, He's, he became the principal of Moore College um, and so he just had a Bible teaching method that just really enriched people. Mm. So we're coming off this heritage but the question is when I walked in where was mission at? And uh, someone stood up at an AGM a couple of years before I arrived and said we should employ someone to focus us on mission and then the next year someone got up again and said I remember last year at the AGM we really need to focus on this. Let's put that forward again. And because there was a desire from the congregation, probably built out of the long history of good teaching, an assent to the idea, a desire to have it, and also an acknowledgement that it's not that easy, also the team, the staff, wanted it too. So I got invited in, and it was a blank slate. It was, no one's done this mission role up till now. You're the mission guy. You're in a church with uh, multiple congregations with a leader for each congregation. Um, but they're starting to specialise a little bit, like that guy over there is in charge of growth groups. Um, but you're coming in as mission and you don't have a congregation. So that's your job. Was it a painful um, reflection for the St Ives uh, leaders, uh, for, the, for the people in, in the church, uh, eldership and the pastors and stuff, to actually reflect on mission uh, and say, oh, things aren't going as, as well as we would have hoped or... Um, or when you arrived, did you actually see this as an opportunity? Hey, this church has been ref has been reflecting on this, um, and that's an incredibly healthy thing. Yeah. No, I think people felt missional. As in, you couldn't really see many people becoming Christian. Yeah. But people were s s quite passionate still about mission, supporting missionaries overseas, and some were particularly passionate about sharing their faith. It's just that uh, we need to acknowledge that for all the bits of effort here and there, it's hard to draw it all together as a coherent whole so that we're actually, as churches, celebrating new converts. Mm. And I think that, uh, you know, it, we make it out to be really simple, but I think we, we, we make it simplistic. We know evangelism is about proclaiming Christ. So let's stand on a stage and proclaim Christ to the congregation who's in the room. And as people come and visit, they'll hear and it'll be accessible to them. There's so much more we can do for mission. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do? You get there, you got the opportunity, you got a few years under your belt as an assistant minister, you're not com a complete rookie, you know, you feel it and you've been looking for a role like this, you get the blank slate, what do you do? Yeah. Well, uh, the first thing that they said to me was, we would love people to do a Christianity Explored course. 
So there were some parameters that I was given. Had that been running already? They'd run it maybe once a year, so once reactively every two year. kind of thing? Um, well, there was, you know, there was passion for mission. There was a desire to run it, but just the inability to find enough people to get yeah. to a course or to set, separate people out. If I'm running a youth ministry, do I have time to run a Christianity Explored? If I'm running the growth groups, do I have time to run a Christianity Explored? Mm. So it's a priority structure yeah. thing. Yeah. And the execution is often the hardest part. So desire, yeah. uh, sort of motivation, awesome, yeah. but execution. Yeah. And you really need someone mm. who's going to have time to do it. And, well, it's a, yeah. it's a very nebulous role. People don't appreciate this. If you look at my week, it's hard to structure it. You, you can't just do growth groups and Sundays where there's structures and meetings and gatherings because most of your evangelism happens with people outside the building in this kind of fluid society where you've got to take the gospel to the world. And if you want to try and do it all through events, there's part of that, but it takes a lot of work to do a lot of events all year round. And so a lot of it's this kind of people work. Yeah, I've got a few principles. See, I can talk about my own story. There's, uh, there's like a few things that I've done and I can share my story. But the main thing they want to see is people watching or listening to this get to take on board some of these and apply it into their own setting. So I'd hate to finish this conversation with me sharing my story and I'll be able to say the principles. So how about I get into to those principles about what I think when I started, when you said, what did you do? What, mm. what was your blank slate? How did you go about it? I'm going to do it as four principles so anyone could do it anywhere. Yeah. So one of the things, excellent. One, one of the key things I think, though, we, we want to do uh, is, is understand that for everyone, whether you've got a blank slate or not, um, whether you've been given a blank slate or not, I should say, uh, one of the replicable um, opportunities we have here is that actually all of us really do kind of have a blank slate. All of us can, yeah. uh, in a pastoral position, can go, hold on, let me assess where we are. Um, what can I do here? What can I do? And as you say, though, the, the pragmatics, well, they're important, mm. but it's the principles that guide them uh, that's the most. So I'd love to hear them, brother. What, what are the principles that you're holding on to um, that you've developed over the time you've been there now uh, that you think, hold on, this is really important um, and this is replicable for other churches? Yeah. yeah. So this is where I thought of four words. Yeah. Okay, so I hope that these can help people structure their thoughts. Mm. So I've got reaping, steering, coaching, and shepherding. When I say reaping, let's, let's start with reaping. Run the reaping. That's, that's the phrase. Run the reaping. Uh, and I'm stealing this a little bit from David Robertson, who some people have heard um, with Third Space. And he talks about plowing, sowing, and reaping. Mm. When we think of reaping, reaping is at that end of evangelism where we see people become Christian. It's the harvesting. It's the bringing people through. It's, it's when people look at Jesus in the Bible deeply and they become Christian. And it's amazing how many people you talk to that want their friends to become Christian but don't have a plan for how to do the reaping. Yeah. And we know that bit. That's the teach. Look, look at Jesus in the Bible deeply mm. and become a, call people to become Christian. Now, in our church, we've been using Christianity Explored, and I love it because it's replicatable. We've got videos. I don't do the, the talks. We use the videos. And lots of different people run it in homes. We've tried it in pubs, in homes, and in the church. Pubs get uh, the best attendance, but the, the least retention. <laughs> yeah. Churches get the most, in our building, it's not as homely and hospitable. By far the best we've had is that over a meal, hospitality mm. thing. Mm. 
So we do courses. But in a smaller church, or, or even in big churches, some people choose to prioritize one-on-one -on -one evangelism, and they'll use resources for that. And, uh, you know, even uh, some churches are really strong at considering how they do their reaping through their preaching on a Sunday service. And I just think we need to think about how do we run the reaping and bring call people across the line. So that's the first principle. Do I just go for them all? Well, I'll just, just press into that one just for a little bit. Mm. So how did you, um, you... You've been in the role now for six years. How did you um, come to the conclusion... Uh, that the, the courses in this context are the best things. Would you recommend a sort of trial and error type thing? I mean, if your church is currently running Christian Explored or, or some version of that, um, a particular way, how, how is the way that you've come to the conclusion that works in your context? Um, and how will that be helpful for people listening, do you think? Yeah, so we have... We're very positive about courses because we have enough people to get together mm. to run a course on a regular basis. So a few terms a year. And in that setting, you learn from each other. And I've always felt that when you meet with someone to share the gospel and to, to, to look at Jesus deeply in the Bible, a lot of it is helping them take that journey for themselves rather than spoon feeding everything to them. Courses are great because it's a conversation and you listen and everyone listens to each other and they own the journey. And they're also being transitioned into the life of the community and they get to see the hospitality of the community. You are the light of the world, plural. Mm. They get to experience that. Uh, one of the difficulties of um, the courses is that they're restrictive because not everyone's available at that time. Yeah. And if someone turns up in week one, term one, and you're not running it till term two, you're going to make them wait for a term. How mm. does that work? So in churches where you can regularly run the rhythm of courses and regularly have conversation, I think, you know, they're excellent. Um, but if you meet a gifted evangelist, you'll find that they're able to do the plowing, sowing, and reaping one-to-one -one mm. and bring someone into the life of the church, you know, in a less structured way. And I think that we need to celebrate that. Um, and, you know, the word one-to-one -one as an example. I mentioned Richard Borg on him before. Uh, sitting down and reading the Gospel of John. Now, we're persuaded Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the gate. He's the way, so we have to bring people to look at Jesus in the mm. Bible. That's the simple gate. Um, that's where we do our reaping. Uh, does it need to be a course? No, it doesn't. We can do it in conversation. But our experience is that it takes a long time for yeah. people to look deeply into Jesus and to take it on and cast off their blockages. Yeah. So there's a bit of the logic. Now, I've explained the different locations we've tried it. But courses have some benefits that one-to-ones don't. One-to-ones have some benefits that courses don't. So going out and doing one-to-one -one in a cafe or anywhere, I can meet, I've done a number of one-to-ones where I've caught a train into the city and they've lived on the other side of the city and we meet halfway. Sure. They're not going to come to my course. Yeah. Um, also, people might have done a course and have an aversion to a course. There's different responses and reactions to courses. Mm. And so there's pros and cons. Um, and I had another thought. What was it? Um, the, uh, it's gone. Let's keep going. That's okay. So just to summarize that, it's really important for your church to think about how you hope to see people become Christians. The reaping, where people will become Christians. And some of the language in the Reach Australia context is the conversion engine. Um, mm. But the reaping, that's awesome. Uh, what's the next one? Oh, I know what I was going to add. Okay. Sorry to hold us up. But I remember a discussion or a debate around whether you could do both the Christian Explored and the one-to-one. -one. Mm. And the thing that 
would restrain your abilities is comms or onboarding, which is the second point. So the second point is steering. And what I'm saying here is steer the ship. We think of the whole church as a bigger group and steering the ship takes deliberate effort. And this is about, you know, when you're on a boat and you're looking out over the, uh, over the front and you can see where you're going, to steer a big ship, you've got to see where you're headed in the future and you've got to steer towards it. Mm. And this is about cultural shaping. This is about direction. This is about the whole church, the, the way that we speak, what we believe together corporately, what our vision is. And uh, when it comes to mission, I think that there's a diversity of approaches, whether it's Christianity Explored or the Word One-to-One or the way that you do it through your sermons and things like that. But we need to work together for our Mm. best outcome. And so if I as a church choose to do all three and try and talk about them in a way that's explainable, one of the risks is people get confused as to what my focus is. So there's a balance. It's the old skyscraper in the desert thing where if you've been to Dubai, you see this massive tower in the middle of a desert and it gets your attention. But when you drive into Sydney here, which building do you look at? Mm. And so if I'm doing the Word One-to-One and Christianity Explored and we've got other strategies and events and techniques and we're putting it all together, people just don't have the time to catch trust in the thing that we do. Yeah. So there's a pro and con. Yeah. How have you um, been able to articulate and, and, and steer, I suppose, from a leadership position uh, while still... Um, you know, having a, the team network. So it's not just Elliot at the top and you're telling everyone what to do, although you are leading and guiding and steering. Um, but how have you been able to pragmatically uh, get your church on board with that? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so steering um, the whole ship is, for me, an annual rhythm. And that's because when I started and I was asked to do Christianity Explored, the target that was given was, can you get 35 guests to Christianity Explored in your first year? Yeah. Great. I need to get the church moving because I personally just moved to the church. I don't have 35 guests to bring. Mm. How do I get the church moving? So this is the steering the ship thing. The way we did it then was we said, in term two, we're going to set a challenge for every growth group that as a team, you've got to work together to find one person to bring to Christianity Explored that we're running in term three. It was future. Uh, when you think about growth group conversation about mission, sometimes it can be a little bit guilt-inducing. Sure. The evangelist in the room makes everyone feel guilty. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, and often it's because you're looking at the past. Mm. But steering a ship is about looking at the future. And if you look to the future as a growth group and you see something coming up that you can work towards and you've got a long run-up, you can pray about it. You can plot for that. You can chat and train each other for that and so we spent the front half of the year they wanted to run Christianity Explored in term two I said no put it out to term three and let's spend a lot of time working through the conversations in the life of the church first year I just gave one simple growth group challenge for them to chat about Uh, growth groups at our church aren't evangelistic settings they're not the place that you bring your non-Christians to but they are a place that are outward minded and you want to train and equip people to think outwardly And so we do that, what I call chat, plot, pray. You chat about mission, pray about mission, but the way that it's not guilt-inducing is you're plotting for the future. Mm. So chat, plot, pray in your growth groups for the future. Um, And uh, that was the first real vision piece was Christianity Explored. And that shifted over the years. That was the first one, and that was because I knew that we needed to run the reaping. So Mm. we put our energy into that. We normalised it. That term three, we had five Christianity Explored courses, 
Um, and then someone ran their own in term four off their own bat because they got excited. And then we ran it every term for the following year. And we just had people coming and people experiencing it and the trust growing. But uh, I delayed adding anything majorly different for a couple of years. And now our major ship steering item is called Share Life. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Share Life. Um, not that it's a one size fits all type thing, um, but certainly uh, you're in the burbs, um, uh, family sort of centric and some retirees, all, all types of people uh, living out there, Share Life. Um, what is it? Just explain it for us. And why, why, do you, why have you seen it gain traction in church and, and what do you mm-hmm. hope to see from it? Well, working backwards from running your reaping, we find that the number of people you can bring to a course dries up unless the whole church are working together to feed it. Mm. But if you just keep talking about Christianity Explored every term, people just get a little lethargic and don't see where they fit unless they're really involved in running it and on the team. But the trouble with the course is that people feel that it's a high bar. Can I bring my family member to a course? It just feels like a big step. So we were just trying to experiment, working backwards from that, how do we get the whole church doing stuff that leads to more people in these environments? Yeah. And uh, we found that an annual rhythm worked better than a termly rhythm in terms of having, if you work backwards from a congregation member to how long it takes to get your mind into game and to train your attitudes and repent of your bad attitudes and to prepare your diaries, uh, we knew that what we wanted to do was, we, we say share life, isn't a series of events. It's a, it, it is mission, but it's bigger. It's actually about transforming our church so that we reach more people. And in term two, we do what we call Share Life Go, which is all transforming our church. We embed it into every structure to get people thinking. We offer training and mission, and we're looking to the future, and we're plotting. And our Sundays, comms, the way we talk about stuff up the front, we push aside uh, other distractions, and we focus a lot on mission stories. We get people talking mission. That leads us into term three, where off the back of winter, we've historically had what we call Big Fridays for youth. And Big Fridays have been great. We get a couple hundred youth. We got people becoming Christian teenage years. And uh, we've celebrated that. And when I arrived at the church, I said to the church, where should I give my time? What are the opportunities? And so many people said parents of youth who aren't church people. So how do we piggyback on that? Rather than doing the typical um, mission-like um, week or you know, um, the January summer mission, we felt that our Friday night youth was regularly on a Friday night. Rather than try and make it a camp focus, we're going to do three Friday nights in a, over three weeks. And we're going to add a cafe to it. And we're going to talk to parents and bring parents along and run some activities with specialists to give talks and then share testimonies. So it's that soft pre-evangelistic, evangelistic work. Yeah, the contact and connect. So contacting people, connecting them in with the community that's there. Yeah, that's it. And then off the back of that, rather than inviting everyone to a course, which for some was a big step, we have the privilege in our church of having multiple steps with multiple staff. So we went from Friday nights to Sunday church where we got guest speakers in and um, we focused on three weeks of bring people to church. It is focused. We, We... we had to explain our theology to the congregation because, you know, running a seeker service for three weeks, we have to be clear about why we're doing what we're doing and what it's for. 
that led, and we did have a lot of our typical church elements, but it actually trains us to think evangelistically about how we run our Sunday services because mm. we're not always very reflective about it. But when you're planning to have, in the first year we ran, we had 180 um, guests across the four services. And when people came to those services, they weren't used to, uh, uh, you know, we, we got a lot of guests, we've got to think about the guests. So we ran it with very much guests in mind and it reshaped the way we think about how to, how to be guest friendly on a Sunday. Yeah, I, I remember my first um, uh, carols event uh, working in church and the effort and energy that went into that, you know, huge amounts of, forget the music rehearsal, just setting up the room, all this type of stuff and the visitors and how we welcome people. Um, and I remember reflecting later as we saw very little fruit come from it, that what if we had the same principles that apply every Sunday? That Not that we had fairy lights out every Sunday and had carols every Sunday, but actually mm. that there was someone in church, people at church, dedicated to caring for visitors' experiences um, on Sunday um, like that every week. Not to make every Sunday seeker, seeker Sunday, but what does it mean for us to do that? So you're doing this in term three. Um, I suppose the input that you're doing, though, is feeding into your church. That's right. You're, you're equipping, encouraging, building them up. Um, can I ask why term three? Instinctively, in mm. Sydney, in Australia, uh, we often go term one, term one, term one. We have Christmas, term two, Easter. We run off the back of those type of things. We've got summer holidays. Term three seems like a dead term. This is a sure. term you nap. Yeah. This is napping yeah. term. So why are you guys doing term three? And people feel a little bit of the winter nap, don't they? Yeah, big time. Which, you know, uh, term three, to rally for it, takes a little extra work. But yeah. to be fair, a lot of churches that run mission in January are doing so much resource work in term four. And if you're going to ask me how to mobilise resource, term four is harder than term two. Mm. Now, you have to make a choice. Are you going to build around the rhythms of your local community, the guests you want to invite, or are you going to build around your resource base? And, and by resource base, you mean? The Christians in your church. Yeah. And I know that each Christian in my church has a bazillion people in their networks, even if they don't think that they do, mm. that they can evangelize if they're energized. And it doesn't need to be in January. It can be any time in the year. But in terms of the culture of our community, like all people, you know, people are a little bit more depressed in winter. And so you do have to work a little extra to get that um, positivity of attending, you know, cold events. That's why we put fire pits out and stuff like that. But we actually have the Sundays in September, which is the start of spring. And everyone has a spring in their step and they're excited about the warmth coming out. But weather is so secondary, to be fair. It really is. And when you think of the people in Sydney, they're not building off January as their free time. Um, holidays, people often in Sydney uh, decline in number. People leave the city to go on their holidays. So if you're in a coastal community, January makes a lot of sense because that's where everyone's going. Mm. But for us, um, everyone's around during term and everyone's here doing youth group on a Friday night. So let's build off that. Yeah. And rather than it being a week where a lot of people in our area don't commit to a week-long thing, spread it out and have a path, get your whole church on board over a long period of time, working backwards from them, knowing that there's gonna be a whole lot of people need to hear it 50 times before they start to even engage their brain on it. And they're gonna to have to have conversations to personalize it. So they're gonna need people talking to them to say, where are you at in mission? 
you know, what's your next step? How are you going to be praying for real people? We give out, um, so to get very practical, in term two, uh, we have been running growth groups online recently where there's embedded videos that they can watch. And uh, I've featured in those videos in term two to rally people for mission. We've had one question. The whole bit takes three minute video, one question to get people thinking about mission. And it's tied to the passage for the week. Mm. So for term two, people are going from heart, from scripture to heart to action, future looking. Um, we give everyone a journal, which is basically um, a bunch of weeks of just getting people to think about their hearts and where they're at and their friends and who they're praying for. And uh, we, we workshop with people how to list all of their networks and names of people. And people go, I've only got two friends that I could think of to talk to one day about Jesus and maybe this events aren't for them. And we say, well, we're not about events and we're bigger than two people. Mm. You've got people at work, you've got people all kinds of places, you've got school pickups or whatever you do. With people all around you, you're just not thinking of it as a missional opportunity. So we train people's mindsets using journals and um, we've also added some extra training resource, but that's the term two rhythm. And the term three rhythm is when we're really active and we're training and coaching on the job as we run those events and as we um, learn from and celebrate the outcomes of those events and look to the future. And then we try and shape the mindset of the congregation from coming out of that to say, how does this shape your whole life? Because we're on about transforming our church so that we reach more people. And that is running every year. Every year. Not reactive. You're proactive. You're looking at the calendar, the missional calendar. Yeah. Uh, and this is in the inputting into your church. The, out, mm. the output is there in term three. Um, mm. I, I love that thinking. Um, not what's going to best serve uh, the outsider, that matters, but what's going to best serve our Christian people to engage with this. That's going to transform them the most. Okay, so you've got reap, steer. Uh, what's next? The third one is coach, coaching the keen. Because when you think about steering the whole ship, it's a lot of people and there's all kinds of blockages that people have. You've got people in your church that aren't even Christian and they're coming along and you're trying to steer them to do evangelism. <laughs> We've got to be realistic about what we can achieve. And what I find is if you're trying to operate with large groups all the time, you're going to get some people a little bit into it. Or you're going to get a lot of people a little bit into it. But to really land it, this is where that mindset of training and equipping comes in. And uh, if you think back at all of the strong training movements, I mean, I myself did um, ministry apprenticeship at Canberra's Bible study at mm -hmm. New South Wales University. And the first training course everyone did was Two Ways to Live. And Two Ways to Live was a gospel outline that we memorized so that we could then go out and talk to strangers about our faith and then learn from that about how to talk in everyday life about the gospel without mm. missing key elements. But training was at the heart of it. And if you're training individual keen people that are keen to use that, you'll start to see culture shaped from below, not just from, you know, the stage. There's what some people have called air war and ground war. Yeah. We can talk about it on Sundays, but it's not landing. We need to get people talking about it in life 
and then we need to get some culture shapers, a bit of your, your guiding coalition or your, your movers and shakers, the people that you really want to train up who are energetic. And um, I just want to say on schedules, I've been there six years now and I'm just starting with this. So I just want to be clear on that. The first uh, two years I focused on getting the running, the reaping going. Then after that, I focused on this share life piece for a couple of years to get it going, which is our whole church steering the ship. I've tried to train people on the job and I've done vision setting from the beginning, but to do it all well, I need more energy and time to improve it. Mm. So at the moment, we've been offering online training so people can do it if they're keen at any time. Off the back of that, we've invited, we had 50 or so people sign up for the online training to have a look. Those that finished were the most keen, were mm -hmm. the ones we invited to meet us in person. So we did four weeks in person debriefing the online content. And then off the back of that, um, I've been meeting with individuals who would like some coaching uh, to chat about the real people in their lives and how they're going and what their next steps are. So that's the deeper coaching that I think some people might start with. Often, often ministries start with the coaching training. I feel starting with the running of the reaping gives you a context to practice what you're talking about. It gives you an on-the-job experience, so it takes it just from classroom all the time to we're actually doing this. And I just wanted to be a doer mm. before a talker. So we're doing, and now we're building our training the more and more we do. Mm. So that's why the sequence from uh, reaping, running the reaping, to steering the whole ship, now to going deeper with a few. And, you know, my prayer is that that'll be effective, but we've got time to tell before yeah. I see how effective it is. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. Um, it's funny, training uh, is often thought of uh, within um, our context, certainly. There's been a, probably a, a lack of confidence in training. People in the church context go, oh, training works on campus. You know, you get the opportunity to go and do it. So, but you train people at church, you know, you train them in two ways to live or the bridge or this or the other. Yeah. Well, barely anyone uses it. Yeah. They sort of data dump it, you know, down the track and it's not put into fruition. Uh, and I think you're right, though, that is it possible that this is because, one, we're not training uh, the keen beans, we're training everyone, when actually we need to be zeroing in on those keen beans again. No, no, these are the guys mm. we want to invest in here. Uh, but also we've got the order back to front, that actually we're training them before having the conversion engine or the reaping, mm. but actually, no, no, we train them with that. Mm. Um, so they have that on-campus experience, if you like, totally. of being able to engage with it immediately. You want to have a sense of team. Yeah. And if you're just sending everyone out one-to-one -one all the time and we're not working together, it's a bit isolating. Yeah. And other ministries have more sense of team because there's more structure. Yeah. Mission is a lonely place. It is. Uh, what's your final principle? So the final one is about shepherding. And it's when we think of shepherding the sheep, um, we often associate that biblically with the Christian community and pastoring people. We remember that there's the one lost sheep story and we remember that there is about going after the lost sheep one at a time. But what I find in practice when it comes to shepherding and pastoring is that we're much better at meeting up with Christian people and thinking individually and 
reflecting with them on where their life's at, trying to offer words of encouragement, trying to bring them forward one step at a time. And we often think of the pathway. We want people to grow from forming in the faith to devoted to centered to I give up my whole life and everything's about Jesus, you know, that whole pathway. And we're experienced at shepherding people one step at a time, as leaders, that is. Mm. In our community, we're always trying to train people to do that. But when it comes to evangelistic ministry, we can see it a bit too removed as a group vibe. And we're not thinking individualistically enough. And we're not going after lost individuals. So for me, this is the fourth principle, which is kind of the glue. It's not another program or another uh, you know, later activity that I'm going to add in the future. Mm. The shepherding is from the beginning. How do we look after people into Christianity Explored? We had to one person at a time, invite, 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 talk to, break down barriers, look after them at the course. They didn't want to do the next thing. We had to meet in a cafe and persuade them to do the next thing. And then a year later, they became a Christian. And you go... A lot of ministers find it difficult to carve out the space to do the personal pastoral work. And it's the same with our growth groups. Mm. We've got growth groups. We need leaders to lead that group to pastor the people. Evangelistic ministry, it's just the same. We need to think one person at a time. So as an example, Share Life, um, the 180 people that came in 2019, every single one of them was brought by a guest and we knew their name. We knew every name of the 190 people and we knew the name of the inviter. And we rang the inviter and said, what's the next step? What's your plan? Wow. And inevitably, they didn't have one a lot of the time. And we said, what about this course? They said, I don't think they're ready for it. I said, okay, that might be true. So what's your next step? I don't know. I don't have one. Well, let's think about it together. What could it be? Oh, I don't think I could do that. Oh, I don't. I can't. That kind of thing. We hit lots of blockages in the personal pastoral ministry. And so we invest a lot of time in that. Uh, 2020, during you know, the year of COVID, <laughs> um, we had a, a, a different season of the Share Life mission. We pivoted. We moved our Fridays because we had no gatherings. We moved everything online and we introduced a digital evangelistic pre-evangelism thing. In that season... We had 90 names that we could name that came to watch our church services online as guests and we knew who invited them. Yeah. Uh, there were undoubtedly more than that, but there, we captured 90 names over those three Sundays and we rang every single one of the people and they're the ones that ended up, we had to persuade and help people to think it through, but they're the ones that ended up bringing people to the course. So the, the course where you want lots of people if you just advertise it and then run it, people aren't coming. I reckon you'd get two to three people sign up. But at the course this year, we had 90% attendance compared to last year, right. even in, so I say this year, last year, we're filming this in 2020. But during this time, there's the COVID uh, crisis. And, you know, we had half attendance on Sunday, but 90% at the course because the follow-up of individuals translated into the same outcome. Yeah. It's that principle of caring for non-Christian people, knowing them by name. Um, sometimes I find it helpful um, 
when I'm struggling in my motivation with, with non-believers, to consider them um, as my most loved non-Christian friend or family member. I go, how would I want that person to be treated? If I'm the Christian now and I've been praying for this person, they finally come, what experience do I want them to have, my closest friend? We need to give that experience to everyone, if we can, mm. if possible. At the very minimum, personal follow-up, personal acknowledgement of who they are, prayer, love. That's mm. um, uh, crucial. Uh, Elliot, as, that's been incredibly helpful, uh, those four principles. Um, just to close, uh, a lot of people here uh, listening or, or watching will be from churches of 70 people, 70 to 130. In fact, the majority of churches in Australia are that size. Um, some people are now considering, okay, well, I, I've got a blank slate. We're not doing much mission. I could probably do anything um, here, but I, I'm distracted with a lot of things. They're not on their own. They're, sorry, they're on their own. They're a million things on. Um, what do you think is the most important first step for them um, as they consider these principles and put them into practice? Smaller church, solo sort of staff member. Um, what's the first step that you'd recommend for them to make? Well, if people reflect on their priorities for the week and their schedule and they see that there's just a bunch of stuff that they must and have to do, if they're a senior pastor and they've got all of these responsibilities, that they can't imagine leading a ministry of shepherding, personal follow-up, training people for that, and I guess if it's courses, running the course and, and doing it well, it's obvious that we need to get the support of congregation members and, and carve out, or, or if we're a bigger team, carve out space on the team, the staff team. We need to carve out the space to put energy into that. I'm, uh, 80% of my load is in this, and I can say each course we run takes a lot of energy, and the fruit is great, but uh, evangelistic work takes uh, many hours per individual to get the outcome. So we have to carve out the space. Mm. And if we carve out the space with the right empowered leaders and we work with them and support them and give them the airtime so they can talk about it and do what they need to do with the authority that they need to have, then I think the first thing we do is run the reaping. And we go through the four principles. We get them to do it. We get them to lead those things and uh, just a quick observation from our share life ministry now we're in a staff team of about 20 staff with admin and everything like that um, but uh, the people that run share life are congregation members and that's because we want to celebrate the contribution of congregation members and we want to empower people to say this is our mission and so the leaders of each of the uh, arms of the share life mission congregation members mm. and I just think we need to recognize as pastors and leaders uh, there's a lot of work in this a lot of good work let's draw people up who have the energy and let them fly mm. and God has given us those people in our churches uh, to do it he loves to see people saved uh, Elliot thank you so much uh, for your wisdom there and, and your thoughts and, and insights and uh, it'll be incredible to watch over the next few years uh, to see uh, how it continues to unfold. We pray to God uh, with great reaping, great harvest of people, uh, one for Jesus. Um, if you're watching uh, and you're interested in getting evangelism back in the center of your church, 
uh, in becoming a church, rediscovering uh, your missional heartbeat. Uh, well, there's plenty of resources and help available at Reach Australia. Go to reachaustralia.com.au uh, and together we can partner to see Australia one for Jesus Christ. See you later.